I think the important thing about the day-to-day or even the hour-to-hour is you have to find the joy in just being on the bike. You have to enjoy just turning the pedals for six hours, for 12 hours, for seven days. And again, it's a trait that I think you see in nearly all of the top riders. They just love being on the bike and you have to love being on the bike. This is Dawn, a very unlikely ultra cyclist, and you're listening to the Just Bikes podcast from The Metal Set. Stay tuned as I'll be chatting with friends and fellow cyclists about all things bikes. That's ultra, adventure, gravel, mountain biking, and all sorts of type two fun. Hello, Dawn here. Welcome to episode three of the Just Bikes podcast. So I have a little confession to make. This episode you're about to hear was actually released a year ago on my other podcast, The Metal Set, which if you don't know, shines a light on all sorts of underreported sports stories, mainly from the Middle East. If you're curious about skateboarding in Iraq, a trailblazing snowboarder in the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia's first triathlete or a champion mountain biker from Iran and more, please do check it out. I will link to it in the show notes. So back to this episode released a year ago. This episode is very timely and relevant for anyone who has ultra cycling on the brain. Maybe you want to be an ultra cyclist. Maybe you are one already, or maybe you're just curious to know how one can race distances that range from 700 kilometers up to and over 7,000 kilometers, all self-supported. Well, today's episode aims to share a good overview of the sport and how you can get involved as I speak with my coach, Neil Copeland, one of the world's most experienced ultra cycling coaches. When I first spoke with Neil a year ago, I was in full training mode for the race around Rwanda, a 1000 kilometer self-supported road and gravel cycling race that took place early February, 2023. It was my fourth ultra. And if you're curious to find out how it turned out, check out the show notes for my race report. I'll be back in Rwanda in a little over a week, this time covering the race. So please do hit follow so you don't miss any of the daily on ground race updates. So who is Neil and what do we chat about? Neil has over 25 ultra distance race finishes under his belt. He's podiumed in some of the biggest races in the world. And as a coach, he helps people realize their dream of finishing an ultra cycling race. In my chat with Neil, we discuss how to get started, training differences for women and men, the time frame and considerations needed before you sign up for a race, training yourself mentally, race management, the beauty in the experience, race selection, and we touch upon nutrition. We only touch upon nutrition because we have a whole bonus episode on ultra eating also live now. I hope you find this episode informative, useful, and also inspiring. Self-supported ultra cycling changed my life. And if I can help and encourage one person, maybe you, to take it up, my job here is done. Again, I'll link to some of the races we discussed in the show notes. And as noted, some of the races we chat about have since passed. So keep that in mind. And when you're listening, when I say the metal set, just imagine I'm saying the Just Bikes podcast. Okay, I'll shut up and let you enjoy this episode. Thank you again for listening.
So hello, Neil. Hello, Dawn. Welcome to the Metal Set Podcast. Super excited to have you on the podcast and chat everything ultra cycling because ultra cycling is in the heritage and DNA of the metal set <laughs> with Thank my you. first race. Thank you for inviting me on to chat. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward to what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be chatting everything ultra cycling, ultra cycling 101, ultra cycling for dummies, <laughs> ultra cycling for anyone who needs to know, wants to know about ultra cycling. And you are training me for the race around Rwanda, which is coming up very, very quickly. But I think it's good to take a step back to kind of give everybody an idea about how we met. It was, I would say 2018, late 2018. I think it is. You did a talk at Wolfie's here in Dubai, which is a bike shop, about ultra cycling. And I think at that stage, I don't know if I had a bike yet, <laughs> but I was signed up for Biking Man Oman. Do you remember that? I do remember that. I was waiting to see if we had the same recollection of where we met. Mm -hmm. There's actually a few people came to me after that talk at Wolfie's, which is still available online. It oh, is it? Up, it is still available on YouTube, yes. We'll put that in the show notes then. Yeah, I think that was in December. And you December, were doing, yes. You were doing, I think you hadn't got a bike then, and you'd signed up or to I'd do a man a bike. in February. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if I told you that. I don't know if I told you that on the night, because I was trying to keep things quiet. I didn't want anyone to tell me I couldn't do the race. Uh, I think you told me either just before the race or just after the race when we were talking. And yeah. you kind of explained how little preparation you'd done for a man. <laughs> yeah. So that was in the lead up to me doing Biking Man Oman. For anyone who's interested in that, you can go back to episode one. And then you also did Biking Man Oman as well, that race with me. So we didn't travel together to Oman, but we were there and did the race. You were a bit ahead of me, <laughs> but did the race together. Yes. I think I've done every edition of Biking Man Oman so far. That was the second, and I think there was one more, correct? Yes, there was. Yeah. So I did the I did the race in 2020 as well. Yeah. And I hope one day it will come back. I'm, I think later we'll talk about good events for beginners to to do for an ultra event. And I think Biking Man to Man was definitely one of the best to go and do for your first race. Yeah, I think particularly for people here in the UAE and living in the region. I mean, it has a special place in my heart because it was my first race, but it was also a really wonderful experience. Um, Oman is a beautiful country. And yeah, I think it's a wonderful first race for anyone. Yeah, it's about stunning. It was... Races. Stunning. It was my first race as well. The year before, so 2018, I had never even thought about doing an ultra race until one of my clients that I was working with, a South African lady called Renette, called me up about three months before and said, Neil, 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 there's this ultra race in a man. You have to go and do it. I've signed up. And I said, no chance. That doesn't sound like fun at all. And she kept hassling me and hassling me and hassling me, knowing full well that I'd probably give her better advice if I did actually sign up to the race uh, and commit to doing it myself. And eventually she wore me down. So I signed up and that the rest, as they say, is history because I just fell in love with ultra racing. Just... Yeah. So Renette is your hype woman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Still is. <laughs> Wonderful. So I guess we should start off by explaining, because I think through my understanding and my experience in ultra cycling, what it is I've told or I've shared with people through the podcast, but what exactly to you is self-supported ultra cycling? Yeah. So I think 
a good way to start is by separating out the ultra cycling part of it from the self-supported cycling part of it and then we can bring them together to define what it means so for me ultra cycling and there's probably similar definitions for for ultra running for me it's anything that's going to take you 24 hours upwards and that would typically mean that a short race on road you might say is around a thousand kilometers off-road you're looking at 450 to 600 kilometers and then longer race long races on road are probably two and a half to three thousand kilometers upwards Mm -hmm. the longest one that regularly is run would be north cape tarifa which is seven and a half thousand kilometers and the famous ones that people will have heard of in the supported space there's race across america which is I think four and a half thousand kilometers and then the transcontinental, which is across Europe, which is anywhere between kind of 4,000 and 4,300 kilometers, depending on your route. And then yeah, there are two broadly, there are two branches of ultra racing. So supported is where you have a full team helping you out, which might be anything from a mate in a car handing you bottles all the way up to the aforementioned race across America, where each competitor typically has a team of nine crew, two cars, and an RV. Mm-hmm. So these are, you know, very, very expensive races um, and, you know, demand a lot of support from from teams. So the cyclist really, their only goal on a supported race is to pedal the bike. Self-supported is much simpler and I think, it, you know, it, it appeals to a, a very different kind of style of racing and style of rider. Typically, what we say with self-supported ultra racing is you must be totally self-sufficient and you can only use commercial services that are available to all riders. So what does that mean? That means there are no feed stations. You won't suddenly find, you know, a, a tent with people handing out, you know, bottles and gels and things like that. You cannot have your wife or your husband meet you halfway with more supplies, water, food, anything like that. Or you can use our commercial services. So typically for resupply, that is petrol stations. I could talk for days on the petrol stations I visited across a lot of the globe. Which country has the best petrol stations? Oh, well, I'm going to extend that a little bit and say which country has the best resupply. Best petrol stations without a doubt are in Ireland. Right. So last year I did the Transatlantic Way, which is fantastic race. And before I went, I'd I'd only ever been to Dublin before. I'd never been to the west coast of Ireland. But before I went, all my friends who'd been or my friends who were Irish, they kept saying to me, oh, you're going to love the petrol stations. I was like, what are you talking about? And they're just amazing. You know, they're open like 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. They serve all kinds of food. You can get, if you get there at like 9 o'clock, you can get a full fried breakfast sandwich washed down with coffee and everything you could possibly want is absolutely amazing. It's not Irish quite the, yeah, it's not quite the best in the world though. The best place in the world that I've ever ridden for resupply was Taiwan. Right. Taiwan is fantastic. So in Taiwan you have Family Mart and you have 7-Eleven and these are like the two competing brands of convenience store. The thing is they're open 24 hours a day and you can find one at three o'clock in the morning in this tiny little village in the middle of nowhere in the mountains in Taiwan. And you can go in and you can have 
hot coffee and a fresh bowl of noodles. Or, I will say that about Taiwan as well. You, it is, yeah, it is amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Or you could even have like thousand-year-old duck egg or whatever they call it. I never could bring myself to eat that. But it's exactly what you need. You know, in the middle of the night when you're starving hungry, you just want to get in and get some food and it's amazing. I took a moment in Taiwan to cry in a cat food aisle of a 7-Eleven on the side of the road it, late at night <laughs> as this, I was fueling up. <laughs> is this because you couldn't decide which cat food to eat? I didn't realize it was a cat food aisle, but I was on Instagram and just ended up crying about something or other. But yeah, no, Taiwan's got really, really good uh, resupply. Rwanda, I mean, I think it's going to be quite interesting from what I'm seeing on the the group chat. Yeah, so I did Rwanda. I did the first race around Rwanda in early 2020. So Jan 2020, before the whole world changed, I took part in the first race. And yeah, resupply was challenging, for sure resupply and accommodation so so yeah coming back to the definition of self-supported ultra racing you can only use what what everybody else can use and that extends to where you get food from where you sleep you know you can't have somebody meet you with a camper van you've got to and you can't knock on a door and ask if someone will put you up because that's not something available to to everybody you you can use hotels typically the kind of unwritten rule is you only book those a day in advance yeah Yeah. and it doesn't make sense Um, some people coming in for the first time might think oh brilliant i will book all my hotels for the whole race the thing is there's so many variables Mm. that you can't control that the minute you try and define a plan that firmly it's going to go out of the window you may have have a headwind for the first 16 hours which means you never make your hotel and then your plan's gone out the window but typically, yeah, we say don't book more than 24 hours in advance. We'll get into that in race management about, you know, how you manage yourself. And if you're sleeping on the side of the road or on a bench or whatever, if you're booking hotels, because I agree with you. I think the first race I did, I booked, you know, I had a goal in mind and I meet, met that. But everyone's got their own style of race management. I typically book three or four hours ahead of ahead of time when I know where I'm going to get. So how does one get started in training? Do they get started like me? Not tell anyone. <laughs> Decide to do a race in two months and just ride your bike a long time. Like, how does a complete newbie to cycling start training for an ultra cycling race? And how do experienced cyclists train? Because I haven't done any real short races, but I can see that there's a real difference between those cyclists who ride every weekend in a Peloton, you know, and an ultra cyclist. So how do you get started? Yeah, sure. So I think, first of all, it's important to break that down into the different elements that you have to consider when training. I think where you're coming from and where a lot of people are coming from when they start this thing is they're thinking purely about the physiological training. Mm-hmm. How often do I ride my bike? How far do I ride my bike? How hard do I ride my bike? <clears throat> And I would say that, yeah, probably new people to it and experienced cyclists probably would tackle it in different ways and probably make different kinds of mistakes when, they, uh, when they're coming in and they're not really sure of what to do. But there are some other things that are really, really important to consider. And I think this is where I find the interesting aspect of my job as a coach specializing in this thing, because these are the kinds of things that you you learn through experience. Mm-hmm. So some of the other things to consider are fueling. And I, and I know we'll get in, into this in a, a, the second podcast, but fueling is, 
yeah, not just about how much do you eat and when do you eat and where do you get resupply from, but also it's about training your body to take on more food. You know, if if I were to get a new cyclist or somebody new to ultra racing to try and eat the amount of food that I eat on a race, then they're probably going to hit gastric distress pretty yeah. soon because I practice that. There are other aspects, route management, sleep and fatigue management, pacing. That's a really interesting one for experienced cyclists and where they need to think carefully. Mm -hmm. These are races over super, super long distances. When you're on the start line, the start line is probably the worst because day one, you're probably going to do the longest day of the race. So a great example would be on the Transcontinental this year, 10 p.m. start. So everybody's going to go, or nearly everybody's going to go straight through the first night. So you're on the start line going, I'm going to be riding for the next 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Now, if you set off as if you're doing a six-hour sportive, you may be in the lead after six hours, but then pretty soon <clears throat> you're going to start suffering badly. Mm -hmm. And I've seen so many people set off, experienced cyclists, they'll set off as if they're doing a sportive. They'll ride the first 10 hours, do really, really well. They'll go to sleep. They'll wake up the next day and realize that everything hurts. They have lost hours overnight as everybody else just kept riding and slept very little. So, yeah, getting the pacing right is a really, really important thing to to practice and uh, and get right. Um, but let's come back to the main bit, which I think, which is the, the physiological training. And really, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to achieve a incredibly well-optimized and efficient and fit aerobic engine. That is pretty much everything we're going to be using on an ultra race. Your one-minute power is almost irrelevant. Your sprint is definitely irrelevant. Everything is designed or everything with your training is about creating deep, deep, deep aerobic fitness. And that's the same whether you're, you know, whether you're new to this or whether you're an experienced cyclist. So as a complete, complete newbie, you're probably coming in without much volume in your legs. You won't mm -hmm. have historical years of training. So I think the important things are to start gradually and build up. The most important thing you can do is be consistent. Mm -hmm. So commit to riding consistently, ride four days a week, five days a week, build progression into what you're doing. This is a typical approach that I see people taking, which isn't necessarily a good one, which is they sign up to a big race and they go, oh no, I've signed up to, let's say transcontinental. It's huge. I better start doing 12 hour rides every weekend. Problem is if you've not ridden much, or even if you've ridden a lot, but you know, in January you start doing 12 hour rides, you're going to get really, really fatigued. And really when you go beyond kind of five, six hours, you're not gaining any aerobic benefit with your training. You're just making yourself very, very tired. And even for me as an experienced cyclist, at this time of year, I'm doing two-hour rides max, two, maybe three-hour rides max, because you know my first race isn't until April, and then my first A race isn't until June. So I don't need to be doing six-hour rides right now. Mm -hmm. For me... So I'm out five weeks now from the race or about a month, really. Um, and I did the Rafa 500 last week, five days, 500 kilometers, which I wanted to do in that five, in a five day span, just to 
I think some, a lot of it for me is mentally yeah. <laughs> knowing <clears throat> that I'm capable of doing it, which I did. I know you thought it was touch and go for a bit <laughs> and blamed mm. me for not riding in the rain. When I did, I rode four hours in the rain. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to blame Garmin and Training Peaks for not uploading things quickly enough. Yeah. But my volume is starting to increase now. So you've got a six hour ride for me in on the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, as you say, five weeks out. Yeah. For you, we're really in two to three weeks of really maximizing that aerobic load and mm-hmm. trying to maximize that aerobic adaptation. Now, I know you've done ultra races before. You have the experience of riding 12, 13, 14 hours. Mm-hmm. So I know you can do that and we don't need to you're not going to make me it's, ride all night. You're in, no, it, we're not stepping. We're not stepping into the unknown. Thanks. So, <laughs> yeah, for somebody who had had never done a race before, then yes, testing yourself out over twelve hours over an over a night ride, something like that, is is really useful because it helps you understand what hurts, what doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. Where's where do I keep my food? How much should I eat? When did I start to feel sick? How does my charging work? What happens when my lights run out? All of these things are really, really important elements to work on and practice on. But you've done this before, so that's not a big unknown for you. Mm-hmm. For you right now, the best thing we can do is maximize that aerobic adaptation. And so that is, yeah, building up to, you know, back-to-back six-hour rides, mm-hmm. getting as much volume of aerobic work in as we can, plus throwing in some, some intensity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if we come back to the beginner who's doing this for the first time, start easy, build up progressively. It's better to build volume and build duration little by little each week. After a couple of months, bring in some intensity. Don't forget about intensity. Whilst we aren't going to be putting out five minute power at any time in a in a race, building intensity, lifting your threshold power outputs, that is going to lift you everything up. So mm-hmm. it's an important aspect to do. But again, progressively building as we go through through the the phase to your first race. And as you get two months out, then start to build in some test rides. But, you know, you don't need to be doing them every week uh, mm-hmm. because rest and recovery is a critical part of what you do. And I think, and again, we'll get into fueling, but the one thing I'd say at this stage is make sure you're fueling your rides. This is a big issue for everyone. It has potentially wider implications for female riders versus male riders, but you've got to, or it's important to understand how many calories we're getting through. So you did festive 500, you were riding for 20 hours. You probably burnt 10,000 calories extra Mm -hmm. in that week which means you needed to be eating on average 1,300 calories extra every single day. That's a lot mm-hmm. of food. That's 3,000, 3,000 plus calories every day. Yeah. I think I probably, for the most part, and again, we'll get into this when we get into the fueling part, I think I fueled really well. I think I could have eaten more for sure, absolutely, but I'm building up to eating that volume because my last race, like, and it's so funny because people are like, you get to eat whatever you want on an ultra race. And I'm like, no, no, it's a full-time job. (laughs) It's a full-time job. You sometimes, (laughs) you don't want to see another Snickers bar (laughs) for like a year after an ultra race. So I will build up to that again. And I think this ride on the weekend, I'm really excited about because I think I'm going to get a little better at fueling (laughs) for that one. Uh, 
And that's the thing. It's about practice. It's yeah. about understanding what works, what doesn't work. People will often say to me, what's the right thing to eat? And my response is, well, what you want to eat. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a flippant way. I mean, if you reach into your back pocket and you pull out a Snickers bar and you are sick of Snickers bars, don't eat a then, Snickers bar. then you won't eat it. And that's the wrong thing. Yeah. If you reach into your back pocket and you bring out a salt beef sub with gherkins (laughs) on it and that is the thing you absolutely want then that's the right thing to be eating yeah and i choose that because that has happened to me i remember pulling out a salt beef and gherkin sandwich and going this is the most delicious thing this is absolutely everything i wanted and i smashed it all down in like three minutes and it was amazing yeah, I'm all for real food when it comes to training. Not sh- just sugary stuff. I, I mean, I don't use I don't use gels at all. I think that would I, make me sick. Yeah, I don't use gels because you can't buy them, yeah. I, and I think that's another important consideration: is what can you buy when you are on a race? And I think you know now we're starting to get into what do you do if you're an experienced cyclist? And I think you have to consider as an experienced cyclist. What are the differences between this and a four-hour road race? Mm-hmm. You know, in a four-hour road race, you are going to have two bottles full of car mix. You can have your pocket stuff with gels. When you're halfway through Bosnia, you're not going to find a garage which is going to provide your favorite, you know, choose brand, whatever, sports gel. Yeah. It's going to be, uh, well, actually, let me, Morocco, because I did the Atlas Mountain Race. Atlas Mountain Race, it was omelette. Everywhere you went, omelette, omelette, omelette. So, you know, you have to learn to adapt, how, to, be how to adapt it. Yeah, I think it's probably an issue with, with cycle training anyway, is most people tend to ride too hard. Mm-hmm. I think it's back to the, the goal, what you need to do for an ultra race is you need deep, deep, deep aerobic fitness. So mm-hmm. the majority of your riding should be endurance riding right. and it should be designed around quality over quantity. I would take two to three hours of very high quality endurance riding over six hours, either sat in a group or lumpy riding where you could be, you know, above endurance zone, below endurance zone, pushing hard up a hill. You know, it's all about quality, uh, quality over quantity. And I think, you know, for, for those of, of you in Dubai, you've got the perfect conditions for training because yeah, that's fantastic. You know, the, the track is like Zwift only outside. Yeah, it's like, it's like Zwift, but with vitamin D. It's great. I'm loving riding outside right now. I love that you don't have to wake up at an ungodly hour to get out and ride, which is fantastic. Um, just going back, so we talked about complete newbies and also experienced cyclists. I think pace is really important, and one of the things I see when people are asking me, you know, how how do you ride far? I'm like, we'll go slower. <laughs> but but another thing that's really important and particularly for a lot of our listeners is that, you know, how does women's training for these races? I know when we talk about race management, there's a lot of things to consider on a race for a woman that's different from male cyclists, but how is women's training different from men's in your perspective as a coach? So, and I I think, you know, we're in the position now where there is a lot more time and money being devoted to scientific studies looking at you know what's different between or how should women train differently and the most obvious one is women have a menstrual cycle whereas men don't Mm -hmm. men are hormonally level through the month whereas women have hormonal changes through the month so i think the first and most important thing that you can do as a female cyclist 
and as a coach working with female cyclists is understand your menstrual cycle mm-hmm. uh, a, because that will tell you when you can expect to be feeling strong, when you should be focusing on intensity and strength work, and then when you should be working on your endurance work. So, you know, in the first, and, I, and I'm going to very quickly oversimplify things here, uh, but a really good book to read is Raw by Stacey Sims. Any female athlete, this should be compulsory reading. Um, it's certainly and any coach working with female athletes and Actually, any husband should probably anybody. read this as well. Anybody should read it. Anyone. <laughs> Anybody who might Anyone who knows a woman. To... Yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, it's such useful information mm-hmm. that helps you understand things in a completely different way. And, and it helps normalize all the conversations about it. And, you know, that's, that, is, that is important. Yeah, I think um, it's something, you know, <laughs> I've had... I've had discussions with coaches before. They're like, oh, why aren't you feeling good today? I was like, oh, well, I'm on my period. And then they just turn beet red. And I'm like, you're coaching women. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, and and look, I have been through that phase as well. Luckily, I had uh, a couple of ladies who coached me who were never shy and holding back and, and told me literally everything that was going on. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll be forever grateful to them, especially to Kerry, because she really is, she really was blunt with me, which was great. It's what I needed to know. And it gets you beyond that. And it gets you to the point where you can have um, much more open conversations with people about it. But yeah, so first and foremost, understand your cycle. Understand that you should be doing intensity and strength work in the first two weeks of your cycle. Mm-hmm. In the second two weeks of your cycle, you should be focusing more on the endurance work, but also allowing yourself not to feel great. Mm-hmm. And that can be the most powerful thing is giving yourself permission when you're not having a good day because of what your hormones are doing. Mm-hmm. I think there's a couple of other areas specifically around fueling, which are important to consider. Maybe we'll talk about keto in the other podcast, but in general, whilst low carb conditions can, or guys can respond well to it, uh, for women, definitely should be avoided um this is based things on things i love to hear i'm a fan is, of carbs yeah this is based on the research that i've seen and current you know best advice and best practice for people who look at this kind of thing for a living women don't respond very well to low carb diets when we are talking about athletic performance <clears throat> mm-hmm. i think back to the are you eating enough Again, we know a lot more about reduced, uh, or I'm going to probably get the description wrong, but reduced energy uh, deficiency syndrome, where basically you chronically underfuel. Mm-hmm. Um, that can lead to all kinds of issues in in men and women, uh, but typically in female athletes, that does lead to amenorrhea, basically the loss of your your menstrual cycle. And if that is the case, then you know, or if you are a serious athlete and that is the case, then you should be looking at that and you should be looking at what you eat. A good friend of mine in the ultra racing world, uh, a lady called Marianne Thiessen-Smits, uh, she has done quite a lot of races. I've done TCR uh, at the same time as her. She's, I think she's done race around Rwanda. Uh, she's done race around uh, Sunny, uh, Biking Man a Man and Two Volcano Sprint. And uh, she specializes in sports nutrition for women. Mm-hmm. And we were having a conversation and she said, yeah, I've got 20 female clients who are all trying to lose weight. And so I said, and how many of those 20 have you told to eat more? 
And she said every single one. Mm-hmm. Every single one is not eating enough. So, yeah, it's really, really important for for women to make sure you're taking on board the calories to fuel your training. Yeah. We'd love to speak to her at some point uh, for a future podcast. So I'm going to hit you up on introducing Definitely. us. Definitely. I'm sure she'd be delighted to come and talk to you. The time frame for training for an event. So I did my first race. <laughs> I mean, I didn't go in. Look, <laughs> I will put the caveat. I wasn't smoking two packs a day and lounging around before I decided to do an ultra race. You know, I was fit-ish, you know, but I gave myself about three, three and a half months <laughs> to actually do a race. Would you recommend that? No. <laughs> this is Dawn. Dawn decided very late to do an ultra race. Don't be like Dawn. <laughs> what is an appropriate time frame to start training for an event? Say like, you know, let's maybe break it up to simplify it at a thousand kilometer race, you know, that you say you can do in 24 hours, which I don't think you can, but I can't anyways. I know people <laughs> 28. No, I, I wouldn't do a thousand kilometers. Well, the world record distance covered in 24 hours is held by Christoph Strasser, who won, won the this TPA. year's transcontinental race. He he comes from the supported world. He's the seven-time race across America victor and he did the this year was his first self-supported race and i mean i am digressing here and he he won i mean he brought a level of professionalism to the race that was really incredible to watch incredible to be to be part of uh but anyway so he holds a record for the longest distance covered in 24 hours and that was 1050 something kilometers supported or unsupported Supported. I mean, he had a full team. Mm. Uh, I mean, Rodney did Biking Man Oman that year. We did it, I think, in 28 hours, which was 1,040 kilometers in about 28 hours. Yeah. Unsupported. He's fast. Yeah. Rodney is fast. He is fast. Um, I think he was around 36. I know the fastest time at the old Corsica course was 28. Oh, no, sorry. No, you're right. Rodney was 36 in Oman, wasn't he? 36 in Oman, and I think Corsica's been done in 28. 28, yeah, but, you're but right. But that was 700K. But a lot of climbing. Right, where did we go? What was the question? Sorry, time frame for training for events. So you said <laughs> three months is not good if you've never time ridden frame. a bike. Three yeah. months is not a good time and frame. I, and I, what is an appropriate time frame? <laughs> so generally five to six months. Okay. And let me explain why five to six months and i would is that for everyone for a newbie and someone who's experienced yeah typically yes and so you know right now this is this is the busiest time of year for me because everybody's got all their entries in Mm -hmm. uh they've got christmas out of the way so you have a load of clients all starting at the same time so i had uh, eight clients all start uh yesterday and I think whether or not, whether you're experienced or whether you're new, then typically you want to be coming in from a period of easy riding and five to six months allows you to go through a sufficient number of training cycles to really get to peak performance and peak readiness. Just because you're an experienced cyclist doesn't mean you can fast track what you can do. You can't kind of compare you can compress things, but it doesn't lead to the best outcomes. Mm-hmm. So you want to be doing uh, one to two months of base work. Then we start to bring in intensity. And so typically we're doing four months to go through a full cycle of base and intensity and FTP building to really get you to the peak of your aerobic uh, performance. And then that leaves us one to two months of 
peaking specifically for the race that allows for practicing your longer sessions without them really interrupting the the earlier stages of the uh of the training so yeah five to six months is a, a good period of time gives plenty of opportunity for taking on practice events um so for those people in the uk doing audaxes can be a great way of developing some of the skills that you need to ride through the night so uh, let me pick another example i worked with or i still i work with a lady called nadine german german lady lives in the uk she came to me january last year so a year ago said right i've signed up to the transcontinental i've never done an ultra race before i've done quite a bit of cycling quite a bit of touring but i know i'm not fast enough and i really don't know where to start and so we had six months to get ready for transcontinental Mm -hmm. and i wouldn't say that any particular month was wasted uh, that was a full program from start to finish. And, it, it, you know, it's interesting. And this comes back to pacing. She said, I need to get faster. And I said, that's not your primary goal. Mm. The primary goal is to learn how not to stop. Right. And you do, you know, ultra racing is the subtle art of riding just slow enough so you don't need to stop there is definitely too fast in ultra racing well we've now. seen it we've seen it at the pointy end like of the races people will like you know blow up they they end up having to stop or whatever happens every single race mm. every single race so i remember checking the tracker six hours in or eight hours into the transcontinental this year and i was somewhere around 175th by the end of the second day i was 50th because you just keep going. And well, Christoph, the winner, he kind of kept a really slower pace for him, right? In the beginning of the race. Am yeah, I mistaken he, in that? No, he did. Um, and again, this is why he played a very astute game. He knows what he's capable of, probably better than any other rider in that in that race. He knew what he was capable of. He knew how to manage his sleep over that kind of distance of race. And he almost just kept a watching brief. Mm. where he allowed himself three to four hours of sleep a night, which for someone like that, that's a lot. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, that's okay. Not a long time, but that's enough sleep to really stay absolutely on top of everything and just watch what was going on. Didn't smash himself. Didn't go too hard in the beginning. And I think everybody, or there were a few of us with a bit of experience watching this going, yeah, he's going to get to about two days out and then suddenly he'll drop his sleep from three to four hours down to 90 minutes and he'll do that with maybe three days to go and then he'll catch up that 100k maybe in a night and a half Mm -hmm. and then he'll be fresher than everybody else and you won't see him again and for me the reason he won is he came off that last parkour section for those of you who who are completely new to this one of the unique features of the transcontinental is that you plan your own route but there are certain sections which everybody has to do and one of them this year, or the last parkour this year, was basically 45 kilometers of mountain biking. Right. Which we're doing on road bikes. And the leaders hit it at 11 o'clock at night in a rainstorm. And he came off that, and he was fresher than the others, and he carried more kit than the others, so he was warmer than the others. And, yeah, it was never in doubt from the minute he got off that parkour. So... Yeah, understanding how to be able to keep going day after day after day and how to get that pacing right. And it is a lot slower than 
people would think my typical advice to people is ride at 55% of threshold, mm-hmm. which most people would be embarrassed to put that kind of ride on Strava. Today's episode is brought to you by the Spinney's Dubai 92 Cycle Challenge. Would you know that this was actually my first ever bike race? The next edition of the challenge comprises three events, all starting and ending at Expo City Dubai this coming February. This is a challenge for everyone. The junior rides and the 35-kilometer total energies outride are both set for Saturday the 24th of February, while the 92-kilometer UCI Grand Fondo World Championship qualifier takes place on Sunday the 25th. For more info and to sign up, visit cyclechallenge.ae, easily linked in our show notes. I'll see you there. When I first meet people and they're cyclists or whatever, they're like, oh, you're an ultra cyclist? They're like, oh, how fast do you go? And I'm like, not fast at all. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm going to really disappoint you if you look at my Strava, like very disappointing (laughs) stats up there in terms of speed. (laughs) Yeah, but it's not. Well, I could get very deep into the physics reasons as to why it's why that works. Um, and that's all to do with the fact that air resistance goes up with the cube of velocity. So the faster you ride, you exponentially have to put in more more power to overcome mm-hmm. wind resistance, which means exponentially more fatigue and exponentially more calories required. But also look at look at the results. So the previous transcontinental won by Fiona Kolbinger. And there have been other big, big races won by women. So I think Trans America bike race, I think it was Ram, 20... race around across America last year. I think. Very, very nearly won by a female. No, it was. Uh, was it? Yes. Was that yeah. that? I thought, uh, th- I'm thinking of this year. This year, female, very, very nearly won. Leah Goldstein, I think, not one of yeah, this year. Yeah, that was the year before, year. wasn't yeah. it? Um, 2016 Trans America bike race uh, won by Leah Wilcox. And... It's established fact that women have 10% lower physiological output. So if you look at all the world record times, that purely goes on physiology from 100-meter sprint to marathon to 24-hour time trial, all of these things are purely down to the physiological output of the rider. Mm -hmm. Then women give up 10%. So how do women go and win the biggest ultra races in the world? Because there are so many more aspects to it that aren't related to speed. Uh, do you know the biggest one? Women don't have an ego. Actually, that's that's not quite true. You some said it, do. I didn't. You said <laughs> it. You said it. Some, some, Neil said it. Do. I did not. <laughs> some do. Ego, ego is a terrible thing. The male ego is such a, <laughs> such a destructive trait when it comes to ultra racing because the ego tells you, Go oh faster. God, I've, just, I've, got be, I've just been overtaken. I can't be right. I'm faster than that person. I will overtake them back. Yeah. You get caught up in the micro level racing. Well, on this, yeah, like, sorry, go ahead, finish. No, you get caught, you get caught up in the micro level racing. And I've spoken to guys who've done this. They go, yeah, well, someone came past me on the hill and I couldn't have that. Or I could see somebody's (laughs) lights just up ahead. So I had to chase them. And, and yes, I have known females who do that as well, but it's less common. It's very common in men. Whereas, you know, you're the female racers will go, yeah, fair enough. I'll have him when he stops and, you know, has to sleep more. I'll just ride past. Yeah. And it's that yeah, Fiona is a particularly good example of it because when you watch Fiona race, her efficiency and her commitment to her plan is second to none. It's incredible. It really is. Um, She's very, I think, meticulous in terms of her race management and planning. 
if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, and I think, but that is one thing to have a meticulous plan. It really is another thing to be able to execute that mm -hmm. when you're seven days into a race, when you're incredibly tired, when your body's in pain and your body's saying, you need to just stop. Your mind is saying, you need to stop. To have the strength of mind to go into a shop, buy some food, and then get back on your bike and ride along eating your food mm -hmm. when you could just as easily stop in a restaurant and lose an hour eating a pizza, that, that takes in incredible willpower. Well, on that, because this is a question I get quite a lot as well for people who are curious, how do you mentally train for these races? I say, just be stubborn. <laughs> be an extremely <laughs> stubborn human and you will do good in ultra cycling. <laughs> I think Sorry. anyone who's known me since I was a child has known I'm pretty stubborn. But I mean, for me, like, I don't know, I, I'm comfortable riding alone. I have more existential fear about things rather than, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't really, I'm not afraid of things yeah. <laughs> or the unknown, but how does one train for that? You know? And I, I think, I, I don't think there is any one single way for sure. And, and this is what's great about ultra racing. And this is what's amazing about coaching and ultra racing is there's no manual. There's no book. Mm -hmm. We don't know. If you want to go and do an Ironman, you could go and get a training plan online. It's fine. Yeah. It's dead easy. You want to go and do the Etapla Tour, there's a training plan online. And they will all get you 90% of the way there. There isn't anything you can go and buy online that will tell you how to mentally train yourself to keep riding through a rainstorm at three o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. or over the top of I on Transcontinental this year, I came over the highest point at 10 o'clock at night in a torrential thunderstorm. And, you know, there's no, there's no manual on how you deal with that kind of thing. What the best riders exhibit, an absolute commitment to getting to the end. And I think for a lot of us, that is the driver. I will get to the end. When something happens, my goal is to get to the end. And there is this kind of drive to finish and that I see in all the, the top races. Yeah, some of them sometimes bail when things don't quite go right, but a lot of them just will keep going. Even when things go wrong, it's about finding ways of addressing the problem ahead of you. I think the best framework for this would be a stoicism of stoicism, a stoics. Mm -hmm. Uh, approach to these things uh, so look at that look at what that means it means you know not being caught up as to why you got into a particular situation I'm in a situation what are the things I need to do to get out of this situation my goal is to move forward to the finish line don't make the situation worse for yourself I think the first race not, not that necessarily I did I, I, yeah so definitely don't make the situation worse but I think just always be thinking what is the best step that I need to do now mm -hmm. to get myself into a better situation? How do I continue to move myself forwards down the track? Yeah. I think people get caught up in, oh, well, I'm not going as fast as I should be, or this isn't going right, or that isn't going right. It's not going right for everybody. Everybody is struggling with things not going right. Mm -hmm. It's about that focus on how do I keep moving myself forwards? I think, the and that's how you, you, know, you manage kind of on a wider level. I think... The important thing about the day-to-day -day, or even the hour-to-hour -hour, is you have to find the joy in just being on the bike. You have to enjoy just turning the pedals for six hours, for 12 hours, for seven days. 
And again, it's a trait that I think you see in nearly all of the top riders. They just love being on the bike and you have to love being on the bike. I know when people that I'm coaching start saying, oh yeah, I found that four hour ride you gave me boring. And it's like, well, how are you going to cope when you need to do 16 hours? Yeah. You know, you have to find the joy in it. And I love it. I love being on my bike mm -hmm. and just riding and riding and riding. And people say to me, what do you think about? Well, nothing really. It's like an extended mindfulness session. Mm -hmm. And you can train that. I think you can, or maybe not necessarily train the right word. You can get yourself used to it. So yeah. go out, don't ride, don't ride with groups. Don't ride with people. You've got to go out and ride by yourself. You've got to learn to love riding by yourself. You know, that might take music. It might take podcasts. It might take audiobooks. It might take nothing, mm -hmm. but you've just got to go and ride and learn how you feel, learn how you're responding, learn how to not get bored. I would agree. Whenever anyone asks me about that, and I know if they're riding in a Peloton regularly, I'm like, start riding alone, you know, because you're going to be alone a lot well, if, if, <laughs> on a race. If, if for no other reason that riding in a Peloton is not really the best training because you're either punching it at the front or you're doing nothing at the back. It's so funny because I'm totally peloton like my heart rate if i'm riding in a peloton my heart rate is super high because i'm like what's everyone doing around me I'm a, like i don't trust <laughs> any, maybe i've got trust issues because i'm like i don't trust anyone in this peloton to keep us all safe <laughs> it's actually easier for me i think to ride alone but yeah and, i love and, riding though i love riding alone to me I, it's I, similar to you i like it's mindfulness to me it's nothingness yeah. and escape and, and, and we talk about you know and i think we probably have to be aware of our diff you know the different locations around the world where audiences might come from so yes in dubai everybody rides in a peloton and mm -hmm. it's really easy to cover lots of miles you need to get out of that for somebody coming from the uk it would be don't always do the club run mm -hmm. because the club run is going to smash yourself to pieces and you, you'll always be thinking about, right, well, where, where's the next sprint for the lights? Where's the next hill coming up? You've got to take yourself out of that and just enjoy the journey and the distance and enjoy being in a very comfortable state. So you kind of have to, sounds a little bit hippie-ish really, but you've got to find the flow of the ride. You've only just got to get to that point where you, you settle in on your aero bars and you're just comfortable for hours on end. Mm -hmm. and, and if you find joy in that, then definitely do an ultra race. Yeah. I've loved two of the three ultra races I've done. <laughs> but I think when you, when you talked about for, you know, people who have um, accomplished, you know, have won the ultra races or the people who are successful in their goals with ultra racing is that commitment to finish. That's definitely my first two races. And the last race, I didn't have a commitment to finish, <laughs> you know, and I didn't finish it. Uh, the first two races I've done, I would have absolutely the first one I would have walked. I would have crawled over that finish line. You know, that was how committed I was to finishing that race. And the second one I was committed to finishing it. And the third one, I just wasn't in a good place <laughs> mentally when I started it. Um, and, and I didn't finish. I think that's a really good point and an interesting point that I've been reflecting on recently one of the best things you can do to set yourself up mentally for an ultra race is try and take care of your emotional life mm -hmm. because 
And what do I mean by that? Well, when you get really, really fatigued, the part of your brain that controls emotion stops working, which means you get the most incredible emotional swings. Uh, you can have, you can be, and I have cried tears of joy just because I've been so, God, I, and I start to kind of almost cry thinking about it. You know, I remember times where I've been riding and I've just been so fatigued and so overwhelmed emotionally that you just start to cry tears of joy. Last climb on the Inca Divide in 2018, climbing out of Huaraz, you're climbing up from like 3,000 meters to 4,002. It's a big, long climb. You know it's going to take two hours. You look back and you know how close you are to the end and you just, it's beautiful and it's overwhelming. And I suddenly started crying. But I think what it can do is it can really expose the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going into a race and you're happy with life, everything is going great. You just feel happiness with, you know, whether it's with work, whether it's with your partner, whether it's with your, your dog, whatever. Um, but there's that sense of emotional happiness and satisfaction and, and balance. Then when your emotions start to lose control, it's just reflecting that back at you. I think if you're going in and there are stresses and issues with your life, it can be really difficult because mm -hmm. that will get amplified. Mm -hmm. So taking time to consider your emotional state and trying to come into it as happy as you can be, as balanced as you can be. And it, I, don't, I don't know the answers to what you do if you're not. Um, I'm not a psychologist, but oh, I, I think it's an important thing to think about. I will say for Biking Man Taiwan, I went into it, you know, I think mood follows movement <laughs> and I went into it not feeling so mentally good. And even though I didn't finish, I came out the other side, I think, feeling a lot better, <laughs> even though I scratched, which is, I think sometimes <clears throat> it's just facing it, you know, like, and I had a lot of bittersweet moments on that race, crying, crying in the cat food aisle <laughs> at a 7-Eleven. <laughs> but I do think it it did help me, you know, get over that period of my life where things were in my personal life a bit stressful. It's a fantastic time for reflection. Yeah. People often ask me, what did you think about? And I say nothing. But then or but then I come back and I feel a real sense of renewal. Mm -hmm. I've had so much time to reflect on just life, where things are going, what's happening with work, what's happening with everything else. And you come back, or I come back with this real renewed sense of desire to get on with life. It's, it's quite amazing. Yeah. I'm excited for the next one. Like, I mean, I think the big difference from this one, I mean, I wish I had more time, you know, training for this one than I did, but race around Rwanda, I'm in a much better mental space, which I think is a you know, makes up for a lot, <laughs> a lot of what's needed to complete a race. So I'm super excited about this one in particular. Um, and I think I'll get there with fitness in the next couple of weeks. I'll be at a level where I'm comfortable to start on the, being on the start line. And, and often I've seen many people go into races in the absolute peak of physical condition who've then failed spectacularly mm -hmm. because their overwhelming thought is I am fit. I can ride fast. Mm-hmm. And that blows them up. I've seen similarly lots of people go in and, and I myself have gone into races not in the best physical shape, but feeling ready to just go and enjoy and have the best race that you can possible. Have. Yeah. Because you're not you're not thinking how fast can I ride? You're thinking, well, I'm I'm not gonna ride fast, so let me get all the other things right. 
mm-hmm. and getting all the other things right is more often than not more important than riding fast. Yeah. Well, on that, race management is such a big part of the race. I think, you know, mechanics is a a conversation for another day, but just even managing yourself and your fueling and your sleep and how long you're going to ride every day. For me, typically I set out a plan that I would like to do like a kind of best case scenario day by day and then change it on the fly (laughs) because as you said, there's so many variables on a race. Um, and typically I'll ride, you know, figure out, I'll see how I'm feeling around four or 5 PM. If the race starts in the morning, for example, and then figure out how much longer I'm going to ride where I'm possibly going to (laughs) get in, in that particular country and then book some accommodation to sleep. But what, how would you like, what, as a coach, what would you recommend for people planning their race management? I think first and foremost, that will depend on somebody's goals mm-hmm. because if your goal is to compete at the pointy end, then that is inherently going to mean a different approach to race management compared to if your goal is to finish. I think if your goal is to win, you are pushing the margins a lot more mm-hmm. and you're taking more risk with fatigue, with with lots of different things. Whereas if your goal is just to finish, I think you can take a more conservative approach around around rest, around sleep, um, around things like that. That being said, this is an ultra race. Don't come into it kind of going, well, I, I only function on eight hours of sleep. Well, you're not going to get eight hours of sleep. Well, you might, but you probably won't finish. If you're the kind of person who could finish on eight hours of sleep, then you're probably the kind of person who's fast enough to be at the pointy end. And you're going to want to race at the pointy end, so you won't sleep for eight hours. It, it's ultra racing, so we, we, do, we do exist on less sleep. I think sometimes it's – so I think, first of all, it's important to go in with a plan, mm-hmm. with a plan around the things that are going to keep you moving what keeps you moving food water sleep so think about a plan don't turn up on race day not knowing where you're going to stop for your first lot of food um and on the shorter races even for you know regardless of whether you're an experienced racer looking to podium or whether it's your first ever ultra race on the shorter races i will say you should know every single place you're going to stop for food now that might not work out and you might need to go off, you know, you might need to deviate from the plan, but going in with a solid plan around where you're going to eat is, is good practice. Yeah. So let's take my first race of next year is going to be the Dales divide, which is 600 kilometers off road from Arnside in Cumbria to Scarborough in Yorkshire and then back again. And it goes through some classic UK mountain biking terrain. And it's a very popular early season test ride and or test race it will be i think they entries open three days ago and he's got 200 people signed up already so it's going to be a big race but it's short enough so the winning time last year was something like 33 hours there's one by angus and he is ridiculously fast and um but typically if you want to get top 10 you've got to finish in under 48 hours mm-hmm. so you're not sleeping. You know you're not sleeping. If you want to get top 10, you're not going to sleep on that race. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I will know, right, I'm going to stop here and here and here for food. And each time I stop, I'm going to buy this number of calories here, this number of calories here, this number of calories here. I'm going to be planning out how much I'm going to eat through each phase of the race. 
I would even go to the point of knowing I know pretty well where I'm going to get water. Mm-hmm. I know that I'll be able to get water here, 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 and here. So my race is planned out. And I think that approach can benefit anybody. You know, um, I've worked with a guy this year, older guy, uh, Martin, doctor, super nice guy. And he did two volcano sprint last year. And the, I think the biggest change we made to him or the biggest learning point for him was when I talked to him about planning his fueling, mm-hmm. planning his resupply stops, completely changed the game for him. Um, so even if your goal is just to finish, it's such an important thing to do. Mm-hmm. Biggest misconceptions about ultra racing. I know we talked about pacing. What else do you think? I think the biggest misconception is that it's all about not sleeping and it's all about suffering. And I saw this a lot after Transcontinental this year. There was a lot of chat on social media from people looking at ultra racing, wanting to get into ultra racing and getting put off because they think it's all about not sleeping. The only people not sleeping are the people at the very, very pointy end on fairly short races even you know as soon as you get over three days people have to sleep if you are doing your first race you are not really going to go in and do things on no sleep at all you don't have to do these things on no sleep at all you can come in and sleep for three four five six hours every night as long as everything else is efficient and get round and finish none of these races none of the shorter races i've seen have to be done without sleep like I say, unless, you know, if it's 48 hours, you know you're going to go through without sleep if you want to come in, if you want to place highly. But if you want to finish, you don't need to not sleep. Okay. Take it uh, from someone who loves sleep too. I got told I looked very fresh at the end of biking <laughs> course again. Yeah, no, there, there, is, there is taking sleep too far if you're having like eight or nine hours every no, night. No, no, I didn't yes. have eight or nine hours. <laughs> then, then, you know, yes, your, your sleep is going to be compromised, but I see this a lot of people thinking, oh, well, it's all about not sleeping. It's and not. Pain, yeah. all of, it's not about not sleeping. Um, if I look at my races last year, Yes, Dale's Divide, I didn't sleep the first night and I got two hours the second night. And this year when I go and do it, I'll probably not sleep at all. Mm-hmm. But that's the only race of the year where I'm going to do that. You know, my next race last year was Transatlantic Way. Six days, five nights, slept every night. Mm-hmm. Anywhere between three and six hours. Uh, Transcontinental. Yes, I rode straight through the first night. Pretty much everybody rides straight through the first night because you don't start till 10 o'clock at night. But then after that, everybody is sleeping every night, except for the very front runners who may not sleep the last night. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's it's not true that you don't need to sleep. And I don't think we, yes, we call out some of the performances and we see that they don't sleep. But I don't think that's necessarily that we are holding that up as the pinnacle mm-hmm. you know we talked about christoph strasser and his conservative approach to sleep this year um also look at atlas mountain race which was won by marion san exbury he slept every night on a, on a short race on a four-day mm-hmm. race or the winning time was under four days he slept every night um you know tcr I, uh, well after that first night i slept every night i think i averaged four and a half hours sleep a night and then Atlas Mountain Race again, slept every night, uh, anywhere between three and five hours. So, yeah, it's not 
it's not that everybody is kind of keeping their eyes open with matchsticks and not sleeping. Most people are sleeping every night. I don't know. Maybe it's looking back with rose-tinted glasses. But for me, these races aren't suffer fests. They're really enjoyable. You know, they're really beautiful experiences. I've had moments that I could never dream of having in my life in any other context on ultra cycling races. And, you know, as someone who is not in the pointy end, typically, like I do get, I don't know, five hours, four hours, five hours sleep a night. And that's enough um, for a limited few days. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I don't look at them at all as suffer fests. And I think, I, I think, yeah, I think that's the second biggest misconception is that it's a suffer fest that mm. somehow we glorify suffering uh, this isn't this isn't Iron Man. I'm no. not spending a day in my dark place. Tri- um, triathlons look like suffer fests to me, <laughs> like Iron Man or seventy point three. I think I think they like to talk about how they suffer as well. Uh, look, I'll be honest. If you are suffering, you are not going to push through the night. You're not going to push deep in the night if you're suffering. If you're suffering, you're not going to have a good race. So, no, we don't glorify suffering. No. You shouldn't be suffering. There are reasons why people do get into a point where they are suffering. When you are suffering, you need to get yourself out of that state as soon as you can. Mm. You know, whether that I, typically you've probably not eaten enough, so go and eat more. Yeah, eat what's on you. Eat what you've got on you. If that still doesn't work, then stop and have some food. You may not have take slept a break. enough. Then stop. Yeah. Take a break. Have a nap. You know, twenty minutes can do the power of good. Sometimes it can be bike issues. Look, the best thing I could advise anybody is you will be spending a lot of time on your bike. So make sure it is set up well. And if necessary, get a good bike fit. I have lost count of the number of people I've seen on races who have terrible bike setups. And then they scratch because they get saddle sores or sore ankles or sore knees or sore wrists. So, you know, take the time because, you know, that that can be a point of suffering. But suffering is not a good thing. Suffering shouldn't happen. This this shouldn't need to be suffering. Yes, there's periods where it's hard, for sure. You don't do this because it's going to be easy. Mm-hmm. What do they say? Nothing, nothing that's work at, worth anything is ever going to be easy. Mm-hmm. But that's not the same as you have to suffer. Right. I mean, you bring up the bike fit, which is I need to go get my bike fit adjusted or go get a brand new bike fit. Cause I did notice last week, like my back was hurting for, um, some of this 500 kilometers that I did, but I mean, what other considerations before you sign up for a race, we've got everyone excited now. Everyone's like, Hey, it's not <laughs> a suffer fest. We're going to have really nice moments. We can eat whatever we want. <laughs> They're raring to sign up. Everyone listening is going to sign up for an ultra race. What are some of the considerations you should have before you sign up for a race, like from a training point of view, from like family support, work, all of those things. Like what would you say as a coach do you need to consider before you sign yeah, up? You, or don't consider everything, just sign up and then make Yeah, if place. you're single, you're fine. If you have any form of family or partner, then make sure you've had an honest conversation with them about what you are about to take on. <laughs> I have worked with people who have really struggled with the volume of training because their partner has not been happy. And usually that just comes down to not having a conversation about it beforehand. I'm really lucky. Uh, my wife, Laura, is incredibly supportive. Uh, and she also understands that this is part of my business as well. So I'm uh, probably not the best person to talk about this. But I think, yeah, being honest about what it is you're taking on board, you know, your 
let, let's say you take race around Rwanda or maybe take a bigger race like Transcontinental, you're looking to ride your bike for anywhere between four and 20 days. You don't just, well, typically you don't just turn up to that after a couple of months of doing a little bit of riding. You know, some people might dawn. Um, I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> there's, there's, you, um, you, volume of workload is quite important when mm-hmm. you're doing this kind of race because that's what adapts your body to the, the stresses you're about to put it under. It doesn't need to be ridiculous, but you will need to be consistent. So, make sure you've thought about that make sure you've kind of committed to yourself and make sure your family is committed to you riding your bike five days a week that you know for three days during the week when you get home from work you're gonna need to get on the bike or you're gonna need to get up early and get on the bike that yes at this time of year maybe two hours friday uh, saturday and sunday is is good enough It, it gives you plenty of load but when it gets to april may you might need to be doing six hours on a saturday and a sunday Mm -hmm. and if you compromise on that, you can still get through it and you can still finish, but it, it comes down to what your goals are. So yeah, be, be honest with the commitment that it's going to take. Um, I think be honest with the equipment that you might need. And it's not necessarily a super expensive sport. Well, okay. Let me rephrase that. Well, I mean, we've seen Ultra- people on bikes that aren't, you know what I mean? Like all sorts of bikes complete these races. Yeah, you you can do, there, there's always this run, run what you brung. So you can turn up on, do lots of things on lots of different bikes, but you will, you know, you will need to carry some kit. Races put themselves, I don't think are that expensive when you look at it. This is not big, uh, big events with big budgets. This generally is people doing it for the love of the sport mm-hmm. uh making minimal profit off it uh, they are reflecting the true cost of putting on a race like this uh, but yeah bikes etc they are expensive cycling is expensive cycling seems to be getting more and more expensive bikes are ridiculously expensive when you look at the top end bikes you don't need a top end bike mm-hmm. but you do need to consider is the bike appropriate for what you're about to do and the i especially i I guess this is aimed at people in in the uae and dubai typically what you ride on flat courses so you might have gearing appropriate for a flat course and a sprint finish Mm -hmm. that is completely different for what you need to go and do a mixed terrain event in rwanda so you know just be aware of what what you've got what you might need you will need to carry stuff if you're doing a race where you need to sleep out, you may need to buy sleeping bags and bivy bags and things like that. So, you know, consider that. And I think the the real consideration is pick something that you that really inspires you. Mm-hmm. There's so many races all over the world. Like people say, well, where should I go and race? Well, where do you want to go and race? Mm-hmm. What or what continent inspires you? What country inspires you? What kind of riding inspires you? Do you want to go and do a road event where you get to choose your own route? Do you want to go and do a fixed route? Do you want to go and ride off-road? Do you want to go somewhere just completely unusual? My main target race this year is going to be uh, the Silk Road Mountain Race in Kyrgyzstan. That's like, for me, that's just absolutely inspiring. Mm-hmm. And that gets me out of bed and gets me on the bike other people it might be their idea of hell so you know pick your ride carefully pick the race carefully i mean on that so i'm yeah i think 
Rwanda is going to be an amazing experience. Like I haven't been to that part of Africa. I wouldn't say Central Africa, but you know, I've been to Zanzibar and North Africa, Morocco. So I just think seeing that country is just going to be phenomenal. And yeah, the other races I've done, I can like, you know, I agree with you a hundred percent like Corsica, magical, not a destination I would ever, ever think of going, you know, if it wasn't for a race and Taiwan, I won't say magical, <laughs> but you know, an experience, a real amazing experience for what it was and somewhere that I never would have ever anticipated going either, you know? Um, so yeah. I, I would agree. What do you think is a good race for a beginner? Because I always say like Biking Man Oman, we talked about before, was a perfect entry race for someone thinking about doing an ultra. Um, and I think it gave me the confidence then to go do a harder race, which is important. What would you say is a good race for a beginner? <clears throat> good races for Yeah, beginners? and and I I really hope that one day Axel can come back to a man and, and do the race again. We'll send because, him this podcast. <laughs> because it, 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 it was a great race for beginners. And I, I think we need more beginners races. We need more, more races that allow people to gain experience, um, to gain skills, to understand if they like it. At the moment, what I see is there's, there's a little bit of a, it's almost like there's a race to make the most difficult race possible. Mm -hmm. Like race directors are creating crazier and crazier routes with more and more climbing and more and more ridiculous off-road sections. There are some races which you expect to be really hard. You expect the transcontinental to be hard. You expect Silk Road Mountain Race to be really hard. Uh, you expect Tour Divide or Great British Divide to be really, really hard races. But you build up to those. Mm. But that doesn't mean there's a complete absence of good races to go and do. Um, I think the Biking Man ones are a good one to look at. I know that some of those are definitely hard on all the climbing. Taiwan was very and, hard. <laughs> and I, I, would, I would love it if Axel could bring in some that were easier to mm -hmm. create more of a stepping stone. And the reason that I think they're good is because there is quite a bit of support. They have checkpoints where there's always food and accommodation available. And they, you know, it's all fixed routes. So it's quite a good lead-in, quite a good introduction to the sport. I think other really good ones to look at. So I love what uh, Angela Walker's doing with All Points North so I've, in that's the UK. I put in an application for that one. Awesome. Uh, and I have to say big, sh you know, get well soon to Angela because she came off her bike yesterday and oh fractured her hip. So oh she's God. in hospital at the moment. So uh, thoughts and wishes with you, Angela. You know, what I love about what she's doing is for the last two years now, she's had a rookie category where you got to start 12 hours before everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, this year, what she's doing is allowing rookies to start anything up to three days before everybody else. And they can choose their start time. So it's up to them to look at the look at the route and decide how long it's going to take. And I think that's that's a really that's a really good approach because um it just takes some of the pressure off. Some of the pressure for people on these things is setting off and immediately being the last dot on the map. Mm. And that can be hard. Um, I, so I love what she's doing there to avoid that. And, and All Points North is is really, really interesting. So it's in the north of the UK. There are 10 checkpoints. And you can do the checkpoints in any order. 
and the routing is totally up to you yeah and it's that just creates a, a whole different level of challenge which i'm sure we will talk about you know if you get in and uh when when we've got rwanda out of the way because you know there's a lot to, <laughs> there's a lot to think about um so yeah i think that's that's a really good race to go and do um a couple of off-road ones to call out um and it's interesting seeing off-road ultra cycling is becoming more and more popular mm-hmm. now um yeah two good ones to call out would be great british escapades in the uk uh, which is 480 kilometers around the north and south downs starts on a thursday evening so you get that night riding experience but it's not crazy and it's definitely achievable um kevin the organizer does seem to have been blighted with really bad weather on a few of them uh, which he blames me for I don't know why. Another one would be the Southern Divide. Another off-road one would be the Southern Divide in the UK run by Marcy Roberts, who is the um, women's record holder for Land's End, John O'Groats Land's End, I believe. And for um, those who aren't British, what is that? Uh, so Land's End, John O'Groats is like a classic record route. So I think the record is... Where is it from? From where to where? Uh, so Land's End on the far southwest point of the UK mm-hmm. to John O'Groats, which is the far, far northeast right. point in Scotland. Uh, so I think the record's currently held by held by Michael Broadwith um, in like 40 hours. And that's um, that's 850 miles. Right. Or... How many kilometers? <laughs> must be around 1,350. Wow. It's pretty nuts. It's mm. pretty nuts. Anyway, so yeah, Southern Divide goes from Land's End to London. Um, I did that this uh, last year. It's not crazy. It's a really enjoyable route. There's no pointless bits on it. And just some very, very inspiring riding through some really nice parts of the UK. Um, other good ones to do, I, I do think Race Around Rwanda is a pretty good route for a beginner Mm -hmm. or for your first race if you're comfortable being in africa and possibly being in uh, a country where things are quite different it's not crazily difficult gravel it's not crazy there's no crazy steep climbs there's a long climb up to yongwe national park simon says Um, the the gravel sections keep getting paved over (laughs) i'm like that's okay yeah it's it's getting easier (laughs) and easier and and i think because of because of you know how it is in rwanda you're, you're going to stay in a hotel every night Mm-hmm. You don't sleep on the side of the road, not because it's dangerous, far from it, but because you're literally every time you stop, you'll get 30 kids running around you going, Mazunga, Mazunga, uh, which is amazing, but you couldn't sleep. So that would be a good one. Uh, race around the Netherlands is another one that would be good for if a beginner. If the wind is in your favor. <laughs> uh, look, I've, you I've, know, got, I've ridden across the Netherlands and it's good when you have tailwind. <laughs> wind is a wind is a mental challenge. We have gears, right? You just have to see the wind as a hill and just slow down a little bit. too flat for me, that one, uh, I think. And, and the, the flat can bring its own challenges, but it's, it's in Western Europe. There's plenty of resupply. There's plenty of places to stay. You're never far from civilization. There's no stupid climbs. It's a little bit hilly around the southeastern bit, mm. but in general, it's fairly flat. So, you know, that, that again would be a good one for beginners to do. Right. Well, lots to consider. Um, I'm super excited to be working with you for the next few weeks anyways for Race Around Rwanda. And we'll see how that goes. And yeah, we're going to be chatting again soon about ultra eating. 
that's a topic of discussion. It's, I think my race strategy in Biking Man Corsica was feel anything and eat. And it served me well. Yeah. So yeah, thank you very much for your time today. And for everyone listening, stay tuned for our next episode, which will be with Neil. Our next bonus episode, which will be on culture eating. If you like this episode, why not give us a little kudos? Five stars only, wherever you're listening to this podcast. And remember, sharing is caring. Thank you for listening.